John chapter 7, beginning, beginning in verse 37, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. We now come to the end of the chapter. In it, we see living water for a dehydrated heart and truth for a divided heart and the Holy Spirit for the disciples' heart. Beginning in verse 37, look again, Jesus' offer of the living water. It says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Remember, the feast that is here spoken of is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or Sukkot. We've talked a lot about it in chapter 7. In ancient times, the feast lasted seven days. But by the time we march forward into the first century, during the time of Jesus and the second temple, the celebration lasted eight days. And you'll remember that the feast commemorated the wilderness wanderings in the desert by the children of Israel during the time of Moses. The people would leave their homes and they would build temporary shelters. The book of Leviticus chapter 23 verses 40 through 43 states the purpose. It says that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. In the wilderness, they had no permanent shelter. In the wilderness, God had to be their provision and their strength, their shelter and their sustenance. For all intents and purposes, the people were homeless and there was no permanent source of water. It's hard for us to comprehend how difficult that is. Unless you've ever lived in a land or been under circumstances where you didn't have easy and ready access to water. 
Now, the feast took place during the harvest. It was the end gathering. It was sometimes called the festival of the Lord in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 29. And the Jews would often call this feast the great feast or the feast of gladness or the season of our gladness because it marked the beginning of the end gathering of all the harvest. This is the time when you would take the barley grain and the wheat grain and the grapes and all of the sustenance, if you will, you would gather them together and you would safely store them. And the people gladly celebrated this feast, even though it was a mandatory feast. This was like one of those situations. Imagine we lived in a world where it became mandatory for children to celebrate Christmas. Look, you have to celebrate Christmas. Well, what do you do? It's a time of joy and celebration where we celebrate the birth of Jesus and you get gifts. I don't want to do it. No, kids want to do it. They want free stuff. And this was one of those kinds of celebrations. Imagine we live in a world of Thanksgiving Day. You know, imagine you you come from some foreign country and we're celebrating Thanksgiving Day. What do you Americans do on Thanksgiving Day? We give thanks to God for his awesome and abundant provision. And then what do you do? Then we stuff ourselves till we can't move. And you do that. Yeah. And we love it. And that's exactly what they would do. They loved it. Josephus called it the holiest and the greatest festival among the Jews. And there were four special plants that were used for the temporary covering. The citron, the myrtle, the palm, and the willow. In Leviticus 39.40 it says, And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palms, willows from the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So they set aside seven days to honor God, to praise God, to rejoice in the Lord. And there were two celebrations that marked the feast. The first part of the celebration, the first ceremony, would take the children of Israel and they would carry torches and lanterns and they would march into the temple and they would place the torches on the temple wall and then others would come into the place of of the middle of, of the tabernacle where they would march around the altar and they would set the lights in their place and it became a type and a picture that the Messiah who would come would be a light to the Gentiles like it says in Isaiah 49.6. And during the first seven days, the priest would go to the Gihon Spring, and there was the Pool of Salom. And by the way, in the Hebrew language, the word Salom means the person who is sent or the sent one. And the priest would take a pitcher, a golden pitcher, and he would fill it with water. And then he would march into the temple. And then he would take the pitcher of water and he would pour it on the altar. And they would do that every day, the first day, the second day, the fifth day, the sixth day, the seventh day. But on the eighth day, the last day, something amazing would happen. The priest wouldn't fill the pitcher. The pitcher would remain empty. And the children of Israel, the people would come to the temple. And as they were standing on the altar, they would march around the altar seven times. Like during the time of of the Exodus and when they would march around Jericho. And it was at that time that they would recite the Hallel Psalms from Psalm 113 to 118. And they would praise the Lord. And there would be the sound of musical instruments of flutes and harps and the Levite choir. And they would sing 
saying, oh, give thanks to the Lord in Psalm 118.1. And again, in Psalm 118.25 at the end, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They would say, save now, I pray you, O Lord. Pray, send prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they would shout when they would do this, the seventh march and they would shout and the whole dramatic ceremony would be a reenactment of God's mercy in the wilderness, providing water from the rock when the water gushed forth in the middle of the desert. So why have an empty one? Because when the children came in to the land, God would be their provision. He would be their ever-present help, their water. And so the last day was the most impressive of all. And when they would finally come out, the priest would recite a scripture from the book of Isaiah. And he would pour an empty cup on an empty altar. And it was at that point. It was at that point. After the shout and the celebration was made. That this young rabbi from Nazareth, this itinerant carpenter from the Galilee, he stood up and he shouted. By the way, standing was not the position of a teaching pastor or rabbi. He stood up to draw attention. And the Bible says that he shouted, obviously, for everyone to hear, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Can, can you imagine the eyes and the ears that looked at him and go, what? What are you saying? The people had thanked God for the provision of rain and water to, to satisfy the physical thirst. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the water necessary to survive. And now Jesus at that very moment is answering their prayer. And as he answers their prayer, he uses it, that great moment. To draw their attention to their greater need, to the greater thirst, their thirst for God, the thirst for eternal things, the thirst for righteousness, the thirst for forgiveness, the thirst to know God and to have friendship and fellowship with God. And you've got to understand something. These children of Israel were commemorating a time when they had lived in a desert for 40 years of wilderness wanderings. I grew up in a desert. In the Mojave Desert. And there's a reason why it's called the desert. It's because there's a conspicuous lack of moisture. And so you can imagine, growing up in a desert, when you see a small pool of water, it is intoxicating. And when you see a, a river, it is exhilarating and when you are an 11 year old or 12 year old and you grow up in the middle of the desert and you get to make the drive to Orange County and you finally get to Huntington Beach and you see water it is exhilarating remember depending on who you are we are between 65 and 80 percent water now, by that, I mean if you're an Olympic athlete, you're about 65% water. And if you're uh, less than an Olympic athlete, you might be as much as 80% water. That means that I am a 160-pound water balloon. Now, I'm not saying I weigh 160 pounds. I'm saying the part, if you factor out the bones and the other stuff, is that part. 
Now, think for just a moment how much water is in the sanctuary right now. Look at your neighbor next to you and look at... Yeah, there's a lot of water in this place right at this very moment. I don't know if you've ever experienced dehydration. It's my understanding that one of the symptoms of dehydration is increasing thirst and dry mouth and weakness and lightheadedness, particularly if worsening when you stand up, a darkening of the urine, a a decrease in urination, severe dehydration can lead to changes in the body's chemistry, to kidney failure, and it can become life-threatening. It's also been my experience that if you're experiencing dehydration and severe dehydration, someone who's severely dehydrated, it's very difficult for them to take water again. You have to give them just a little bit of water, a little bit of the time. When you become dehydrated, your thoughts become incoherent. When you become dehydrated, you start to crave water. Your skin grows clammy. Your vital organs begin to atrophy. Your eyes need fluid to cry. Your mouth needs moisture to swallow. Your glands need moisture to sweat to keep your body's temperature cool. Your cells need blood. Your joints need fluid to to lubricate them. So you deprive your body of water, and guess what happens? You die. Deprive your soul of living water, and you will die. My friend Max Lucado writes, Deprive your soul of spiritual water, and your soul will tell you. Dehydrated hearts send desperate messages, snarling tempers, waves of worry, growling mastodons of guilt and fear. You think God wants you to live with these? Hopelessness, sleeplessness, loneliness, resentment, irritability, insecurity. These are the warning signs, symptoms of a dryness deep within. Do you have a dehydrated heart? Jesus doesn't seem to limit the thirst to anything in particular or any anyone in particular. As a matter of fact, when he says, if anyone thirsts, religious and non-religious, male and female, if anyone thirsts, by the way, Jesus is the answer to the specific and persistent thirsts. He says, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. You'll notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, if anyone thirsts, make sure that you embrace Judaism and read the law and read the Torah. As a matter of fact, He doesn't ask people to go to church. He doesn't ask people to embrace some philosophy of religion. Trust me, I want you to go to church, and I'm glad that you're here. But Calvary Chapel has never saved a single soul. And Gino Geraci has never saved a single soul. Jesus says, you must come to him and drink. And by the way, if you don't come, you won't drink. And if you don't drink, you'll never be satisfied. It was Augustine who famously said, Thou hast created us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So when is a person most likely to drink? 
when they're thirsty. When they absolutely sense and crave their need. Someone has rightfully said, well, you can kick a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Oh, you can make him drink. If you take a great big salt tablet and you wax and massage his gums with salt, guess what? The horse will drink. Yeah, you're creating an artificial mechanism, but it works. Are you thirsty? Or are you filled? It was T.S. Eliot who famously wrote so long ago, people can be persuaded to desire almost anything if they are constantly told that it is something to which they are entitled and which is unjustly withheld from them. What is it that you desire? Usually our desires are dictated by the world in which we live. Our physical flesh dictates to us. Our cravings and sensibilities dictate to us. Our desires dictate to us. You watch the TV and it tells you, you need something. And you go, I need this. You had no idea that you ever needed until you watched it on Nickelodeon. You had no idea that you needed it until it it appeared in the form of a commercial. That's why I always tell my children when we're watching TV, does that make you want to buy that? No. Isaiah 55, verse 1, the prophet said, Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you don't have money, come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. He's envisioning a time when the Messiah will come and satisfy the thirst. And we go to the channel of living water. Look what it says in verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Note carefully what Jesus said. First, he says, if anyone thirsts, and everyone does, let him come to me and drink. And then he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus makes belief in himself the measure of salvation and the measure of life. And belief doesn't mean believe in God in an intellectual way. It doesn't mean to even acknowledge the historical flatbacks surrounding a person named Jesus. It's the Greek word pisteo, and it means to trust and rely. It means to place full confidence and security. It means to take the mental and emotional and spiritual circumstances of your existence and then fully and finally trust them. So, what is the result of those who come to Jesus and drink from his offer? What it says is, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says, Something very interesting. As the scripture has said. You know what? I tried to find the chapter in the verse. Where in the Bible does it say, quote, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water or out of his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. There is no chapter and verse that says that. But there's an interesting statement. When Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, when the priest would take the empty pitcher and pour it on the altar, he would say these words, Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, it says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. The scriptures insist that the Messiah will make a transformation take place from the inside out. Do you remember the promise Jesus made to the woman at the well in chapter 4? Remember in verse 14 it says, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. In the ancient culture, there were two types of water, living water, which was flowing from a stream and stagnant water or a pool of water that would would eventually get rancid and polluted. There was a lake not far from there called the Dead Sea, where the Jordan River's water would flow into it. And with the salinization and, and the chemical presence, it would create a hostile environment where nothing could survive. And Jesus speaks of a type of water that's alive, a a type of water that's refreshing, a, a type of water that's eternal, a type of water that's satisfying. Christian, is that a description of you? Is that a description of your life? Does the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you create a mechanism where the the freedom and the joy and the sensibility spills out over everyone who you come in contact with? Certainly the Holy Spirit lives inside the believer, but has the Holy Spirit come upon you and filled you? And does he flow from within you? You might say, well, look, look, Pastor, I received the Holy Spirit when I was saved. Amen. Praise the Lord. When you open your heart to Jesus, just like the disciples did in John chapter 20. Yes, the Holy Spirit took residence in your heart. The disciples in John 20 were born again, but their lives were weak and timid. As a matter of fact, when they came to arrest Jesus and then crucified him, they all ran away. But after the, Jesus rose from the dead 40 days later, when the Holy Spirit had come upon them, they became powerful witnesses of the life, the message, and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Yes, the Holy Spirit is in you. But has the Holy Spirit come upon you? And does the Holy Spirit flow From you. As a matter of fact, look at the delivery system for the living water in verse 39. In John chapter 7, verse 39, it says, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This passage is very difficult. As a matter of fact, in one Greek manuscript, it reads, For as yet there was no spirit. Well, what are we to make of that? What does that mean? Does that mean that the Holy Spirit didn't exist? Of course not. The Holy Spirit existed and He is eternal and has all the attributes of God. I 
I suspect it means that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given in power. That is, the Holy Spirit had not expressed himself in the believer in power. Remember, the Holy Spirit is a person. A powerful person, to be sure, but a person nonetheless. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not less God than the Father or the Son. You know what it reminded me of? Like atomic energy. You realize that atomic energy has always existed. In nature and circumstances, energy is being converted to matter and matter to energy in the form of explosions in the stars. Atomic energy has always existed, but atomic power has only been recently revealed and utilized by human beings. Atomic energy and atomic power was utilized when a group of scientists learned its mysteries, split the atom, and then released its powers. But that's where the illustration really ends. Because we can take the energy and manipulate it, but if it's falsely used, it can destroy us. The Holy Spirit is not an energy that we manipulate. The Holy Spirit is not a force that we can force to do our bidding and our will. The Holy Spirit is a person. Not a force that we harness. He is a person who fills us and empowers us and gives us gifts. In Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11, the prophet said, The Lord will guide you continually. The Lord will satisfy your soul in drought. The Lord will strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, be inside of you, empower you. It says, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And by the way, when when John speaks of the term, Jesus was not yet glorified, that expression always refers to Jesus' death. It's a type and a picture, if you will, A description of Jesus going to the cross and dying for our sin and then subsequently being raised from the dead. We know that in John chapter 17, verse 1, when Jesus prays to his heavenly father, he prays and he spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. It brought weight and glory and substance to the reality of who God is. Jesus died for our sin and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus certainly results in the forgiveness of sin and the reconciliation of the Father, but it results in something else too. Power. Power to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to God. And so... The Holy Spirit is our down payment. The Holy Spirit is our seal. The Holy Spirit is the mechanism whereby we experience the abundant life that Jesus has for us, not just simply in the sweet by and by, but in the real here and now. And so Jesus makes the offer. Look at verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, 
Truly, this is the prophet. Yes, Jesus is the prophet mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. The prophet who would be like Moses. The prophet who would come. The person who tells the truth. The truth about God in verse 41. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Verse 42. Has not the scripture said that? That the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was. Isn't this interesting? The religious people, the religious leaders, the people who are at the feast and the festival actually quote the Bible to keep from coming to Christ. Have you ever met someone like that? Hey, look, I have my religion and I'm happy with my religion. Tell me about your religion again. It's a religion that conveniently excludes Christ. It's a, it's, a, it's a religion that conveniently allows me to live my life any way I want to live it. T- tell me again what religion you are. My religion is what I believe. Okay, tell me again what it is that you believe. Well, I believe that there's a God out there somewhere and, and that if you live a good life, well, then you'll be okay. And you believe that. Why? Well, because that's what I want to believe. Does it matter to you what God has revealed in the Bible? What he's revealed about himself, about the nature of sin and and the problem that you're experiencing and that the reason why you have this persistent emptiness and this horrible void and that weakness and wickedness pervades your life, it, that there's an emptiness and a longing and you find yourself searching and searching and you, you never seem to find what it is that you're looking for. When are we most likely to make a wrong choice? Usually it's when we have an inadequate or an incomplete information. Does the scripture say that, that Christ will come from the seed of David. Yes, he's going to be David's son. Is he going to be from Bethlehem? Yes, he is going to be from Bethlehem. Well, will the Christ come out of Galilee? When you embrace the truth and when you hold the truth, there will be those who will try to pry it out of your hands. But when you have inaccurate or inadequate or incomplete information, sometimes it will cause you to draw a false conclusion about Jesus. A lot of people reject Jesus and they don't read the Bible and they don't even care what the Bible has to say. Well, I believe that the Bible is a mythological musing of people who wanted to believe in God, but there really isn't a God. And by the way, the Bible is filled with contradictions. Oh, really? This is exciting. This means you've read the Bible, right? You understand the Bible. There's 66 books in the Bible, and you've read them, and it's full of contradictions. This is exciting. Finally, I can talk with someone who's actually read the Bible. Well, I've never really read it. Oh. How can you know so much about the Bible having never read it? No, I've read it. Really. You know, even when I have people tell me that they've read it, I'll just say, can you tell me what the theme of Isaiah is? Can you tell me what the theme of Ezekiel is? There's 66 books in the Bible. I'm going to just give you a break. Give me the theme of even one book in the Bible. I've never had a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon ever be able to answer that. Because they don't really read the Bible. They just read it selectively. They don't read it in its context. 
So there was a division among the people because of him. That's what it says in verse 43. There was a division among the people because of him. Does that shock you or surprise you that Jesus divides people? He divides right from wrong and truth from error. Does that bother you? And Jesus will divide the people. Because the moment that you embrace what Jesus says is true, you run the risk of alienating everyone else. And look what it says in verse 44. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, "Uh, why haven't you brought him? We sent you to arrest him. We issued a bench warrant. Why haven't you arrested Jesus? Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Now, officers get all kinds of talk from all kinds of people. I've spent lots and lots of hours with police officers pulling people over, hearing explanations of why they've done what they've done. And they hear everything from everyone. But can you imagine pulling Jesus over? You're getting ready to write him a ticket or you're getting ready to arrest him and you actually join his cult. Look what it says in verse 47. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? In other words, they're asking this. Have you drank the Kool-Aid? What is that? What is that purple mustache I see? You've been drinking the Kool-Aid. You've been listening to what he's been saying about life and about love and about forgiveness and about hope. You've been listening, haven't you? You've been listening to what he's been saying about how you can experience forgiveness in life. You've been listening that there's a way to overcome fear. You've been listening and and something is welled up inside of you and you're wondering if what Jesus is saying is really true. Look what it says in verse 48. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Do you understand what they're saying? No credible scholar, no honest academician that would buy into this Jesus nonsense. Smart people simply don't accept superstitious nonsense. Don't you realize that 90% of the credentialed professors in the, in the school systems of America reject the validity of the Bible and the reality of a God? Don't you understand that 90% of the scientists with a Ph.D. earned in their academic profession embrace evolution? Only ignorant fools accept Jesus? Although there is an underground growing of scientists from Harvard and Yale and Berkeley and Stanford. The list is growing and swelling as this world and its failed attempts to explain reality crumble right before their academic eyes. In verse 49, but this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. Oh, really? The ones 
who have read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they're a curse. Haven't they read their own law that anyone who tries to keep the law is a curse? Because if you break any portion of the law, then you're guilty of the whole law. By the way, did Judaism save a single person? Even one person? Has one person, has even one person come into a right relationship and friendship with God because they kept the rules and they kept them faithfully and they were obedient to keeping the religious rules faithfully? Has even one person received acceptance by God for keeping the rules? Was Abraham accepted by keeping the rules? Or did, was he accepted because he came to God by faith? Was Isaac accepted by rules or by faith? Was Jacob accepted by rules or by faith? None of the rulers or the Pharisees believed. Oh, wait a minute. We've got this underground Christian, this secret person, Nicodemus. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by by night being one of them, (laughs) said to them, excuse me. You say you know the law and you love the law and you embrace the law. Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? What? Nicodemus? Nicodemus, are you going to defend these losers also? Think about what you're doing. Think about what you're saying. But Nicodemus tragically uses logic. Okay, let me get this straight. You claim you love the law. The law says don't judge a man without a fair hearing. The question itself implies that the religious leaders had done exactly that. They tried, convicted, found Jesus guilty without an honest examination. Doesn't that sound exactly like the world in which you live? I reject Jesus. Why do you reject Jesus? Why do you simply don't believe it? Tell me again why you don't believe it. I don't believe it because I reject it. Tell me again why you reject it. I reject it because I don't believe it. But isn't it based on some sort of substantive position after carefully researching the claims of Jesus? You've dismissed his supernatural origin. You've dismissed the 300 prophecies that relate to him. You dismiss his virgin birth. You dismiss the miracles. You dismiss the resurrection from the dead without an honest examination. The law required justice for every man. In Exodus 23, 1, it says, You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. In Deuteronomy 1, 16, it says, Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is in him, with him. Nicodemus knew in his head, he knew, he knew, he knew, he knew in his head it was right to defend Jesus. But in his heart, in his heart he wondered if it was worth the risk. Is it worth the rejection? Is it worth the ridicule? Is it worth the mockery? Is it worth not being accepted by my family and my friends? Will you make a half-hearted attempt to defend Jesus? Until they shout you down? At home and at school and at the workplace? Do you have a dehydrated heart? 
you will not satisfy your thirst unless you go to Him and drink. There is no substitute for actually drinking. Do you have a divided heart? Your heart will never be united until you embrace Him fully and finally. Contrast that divided heart with this disciple's heart. The following note was found in the office of a pastor from Zimbabwe. There's a terrible persecution that's been happening over many, many years there. As a matter of fact, just last week, Queen Elizabeth revoked the knighthood of President Mugabe for his crimes against humanity and his unrelenting persecution of Christians. This note was found in the pastor's office. It it comes from a book called The Signature of Jesus. The note reads, I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back down, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goods. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right. First. Tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and I labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions are few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up. Shut up. Let up. Until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till I know, and work till he stops me. 
And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. What about you? Is your banner clear? Undivided? Unpolluted? By the way, there's only one thing you can do with a person like this pastor in Zimbabwe. You must let him go. Or you must kill him. And they did not let him go. What will you do? What is it that you want? Will you join the fellowship of the unashamed? You will never satisfy your thirst unless you Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person who is dehydrated, who has stumbled into this church and we have placed a spiritual IV in their arm and they're starting to rehydrate at this very moment as they entertain the notion that Jesus is who he says he is. That there can be a satisfying solution to the emptiness that there can be a satisfying solution to the wickedness. That there can be energy and power for the divided heart. For the half-hearted Christian who stands up in the face of persecution with weak arguments and timid tears. Lord, we pray that we would join the fellowship of the unashamed. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person right now who desperately needs to be rehydrated. Their heart is empty and weak. Lord, I pray even now that the Holy Spirit, the living water, would splash inside of them and find its way in every nook and cranny and crevice of their heart, saturating and satisfying. And for the person who's never known you, for the person who's never experienced living water, the emptiness and the darkness and the loneliness, the wickedness and the emptiness so great, Lord, I pray that you would draw them. I know that no one comes to you unless they're drawn by the Spirit of God. And I pray that they're, you're drawing them even now. And if that's you, you know you need to have a right relationship with God and you don't. Your heart is characterized by emptiness. Just slip up your hand right now. Come to Jesus. Come to Him. Believe in Him. I'm not asking you to believe in me or believe in this church necessarily. You want to experience the satisfying solution of life? Embrace Jesus. Accept Jesus. Hear His words. Receive His message. You won't 
be satisfied unless you drink. Won't you? Cry out to Him. Pray to Him. Pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, my heart is empty. I need Your help. My sin is great. I need Your forgiveness. My judgment is certain. I need hope. Please come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Thank you for being my Savior. Satisfy my thirst. I commit my life to you. I want to join the company of the unashamed. In Jesus' name, Amen.